0: is KYUK Public Radio for the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta. I'm Evan Erickson. The largest school district in the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta will have a new superintendent in July. Lower Kuskokwim School District board members voted on February 13th to appoint Andrew Anderson to take over the superintendent position in the district after the current superintendent, Kimberly Hankins, retires. In a statement, Anderson said he is honored and humbled to be selected as the incoming superintendent, and that he looks forward to working with staff and communities throughout the district to support the learning and growth of students. Anderson has history in the YK Delta and more broadly throughout Alaska. He was superintendent for the Lower Yukon School District between 2018 and 2020 and held other positions in that district as well. He's also been principal or vice principal for a handful of schools in the Bering Street School District and was principal of Nome Belts Junior and Senior High School. In 2022, Anderson was a finalist for the Kodiak Island Borough School District Superintendent position. Anderson holds a master's degree in secondary school administration and a bachelor's degree in history. In a written statement, school board president Clarence Daniel said that selecting a new superintendent is a big decision and that the board went back and forth evaluating each candidate and it was a tough decision to make. Daniel added that he hopes the community feels a sense of ownership in the process. The process of selecting a new superintendent was a long one, involving multiple rounds of interviews and a variety of consultations with district staff, students, families, and community members. The school board also entered into a $14,500 contract with the Alaska Association of School Boards to help with the search for candidates. Anderson was one of three finalists for the position. The other two finalists were both already employed by the Lower Kuskokwim School District LKSD Assistant Superintendent Edward Picard, and Ayapun Litnarvik Principal Joshua Gill. Alaska lawmakers heard overwhelming opposition to a bill last Wednesday that would allow electronic monitoring in state fisheries. As KFSK's Hannah Flohr reports, most of the fishermen and industry representatives were concerned with the cost to fishermen.
1: Senate Bill 209 and its companion bill in the House would allow the state's Board of Fisheries to require electronic monitoring in state fisheries. The program would be managed by the State Department of Fish and Game. Commissioner Doug Vincent Lang told the Senate Labor and Commerce Committee the bill is meant to create another tool for fisheries enforcement.
2: I think the question comes down to right now the only tool that the board has when they're concerned about a fishery and and the potential for some kind of violation occurring in that fishery is to put an observer on board the boat. They don't have any other option. So I think adding this tool to the toolbox gives the board another option.
1: The bills were introduced last month by Governor Mike Dunleavy. They would make it possible to use electronic monitoring in place of mandatory observers aboard fishing vessels. Currently, only a few state-managed fisheries require observers. Vincent Lang said that the small size of many fishing boats makes it difficult to find space for an observer.
2: Clearly, on a small boat, electronic monitoring would, would not inconvenience the boat operator by having to bunk that person and have them on the deck space while they're fishing. So like a sane boat, you know, there's limited bunk space and there's limited deck space when you're running the same gear, that would be an opportunity not to inconvenience that boat owner with those kinds of um, presences on the the deck.
1: And he said the price tag of electronic monitoring would be significantly cheaper than the cost of observers. Fishermen have to pay to have observers on their boats. They would also have to pay for the electronic monitoring equipment, which is estimated to cost roughly $17,000 to install, plus $5,000 in yearly maintenance. Senator Forrest Dunbar, an Anchorage Democrat, said that since very few state-managed fisheries require observers, it's inaccurate to compare the cost of observers to the cost of electronic
2: monitoring. It's not really we're reducing costs from observer to electronic, we're sort of going from nothing to electronic monitoring, which would be potentially a significant increase in costs for these boats.
1: Tracy Welch is the executive director of United Fishermen of Alaska. She told the committee and the group opposes the Senate bill, in part because of the expected cost to fishermen. She said she's concerned that many fishermen cannot afford those costs, especially given the current state of the seafood industry. And she says there's another problem. If electronic monitoring is mandatory, equipment failures could mean that fishermen would not be able to fish until the equipment is repaired. I talked to one of my board members yesterday who is currently facing equipment issues for a cod fishery, and he is currently waiting for someone to come to his boat to fix it, and he cannot leave until that happens. So if this is really about enforcement, can we possibly put more money towards enforcement um, rather than electronic monitoring Charlotte Levy spoke for the Aleutians East Borough. She spent the last six years working with fishermen in the region to develop an electronic monitoring, or EM, program in the federal fisheries.
2: I can't stress enough that EM programs are very complicated. They are resource intensive and, and just as burdensome as observer programs and should be given the same rigorous setting prior to considering a new program.
1: She said that the federal electronic monitoring programs were based on existing observer programs.
2: The state currently does not have this level of infrastructure, and it's worth considering what types of resources and funding the state has to develop a new monitoring program where none currently exists.
1: All comments, both verbal and written, expressed opposition to the bill as it is currently written. Most were concerned with the potential cost of the program to fishermen some cited concerns with government overreach and surveillance. The Senate bill remains pending in the Labor and Commerce Committee. A similar bill in the Alaska House has not yet received a hearing. In Petersburg, I'm Hannah Flohr.
0: Bristol Bay residents testified last week on whether roughly 28 million acres of federal land, mostly in the western part of the state, should be open for potential resource development. The hearing came as the Bureau of Land Management sought public input on the upcoming decision. As KDLG's Christina McDermott reports, most people who testified in Dillingham advocated against opening up the land.
3: In Bristol Bay, about a million acres are in question, primarily along the Nishigak and Quijak rivers. Much of it is federal subsistence hunting land. If the federal government opens the land, it could become available for resource extraction, like mining. The Bureau of Land Management has traveled to 18 communities in Alaska in recent months, including to Dillingham and King Salmon, hearing public testimony and gathering information on whether communities support opening the 28 million acres in Alaska fully, partially, or not at all. The meeting in Dillingham had about a dozen attendees, with several giving testimony. The majority said no to opening up any of the land. Dolores Larson, whose Yupik name is Mayrok, is a lifelong subsistence user from Kaliganik. She's also the deputy director at the United Tribes of Bristol Bay. As part of her testimony in Dillingham, Larson said opening the lands to development, which are technically called D1 withdrawals, could impact the community's subsistence.
1: Lifting D1 withdrawals could fragment habitat, shifting migration routes that could potentially decrease or diminish the caribou (coughs) populations and in turn decrease our access to subsistence resources.
3: Larson said that her community is already contending with the challenges of climate change.
1: These changes further demonstrate the need to protect the landscapes and large intact ecosystems that sustain our traditional ways of life.
3: The status of the land is part of a long and tangled history going back to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which passed in 1971. Under ANCSA, the Department of Interior was allowed to withdraw 158 million acres of public land, allowing Native corporations time to make selections and protecting land for the public's interest. They get the name D1 from the section of ANCSA that states how the Department of Interior could withdraw the lands. The federal government published a draft environmental impact statement in December outlining how revoking the withdrawals on the proposed 28 million acres could affect wildlife and nearby communities. The document identified the loss of federal subsistence priority for some rural residents, increased competition for subsistence resources, and an adverse impact on communities' cultures of subsistence as potential risks. It also said that the decision could lead to increased infrastructure and human activity in undeveloped spaces. But it said that development could create jobs and increase income within communities. Melanie Brown is the outreach director at Salmon State, a conservation group focused on protecting wild Alaska salmon. She also attended Dillingham's hearing. She says she's concerned that opening the land to development will fragment it.
1: My fear is that, you know, breaking the land open, you know, for development and exploration will scatter herds and impact salmon, wild salmon runs. And Mm -hmm. We're so fortunate to have what we have in this state.
3: At the hearing in Dillingham, one individual spoke about the possibility of opening only part of the lands, and one said they did not have enough information to decide. The decision on whether to open the land is set to come out this summer. In Dillingham, I'm Christina McDermott.
0: This is KYUK News. I'm Evan Erickson, Koyana for listening. Please share your news tips, comments, or suggestions. You can email us at news at kyuk.org or message us on Facebook. And stay tuned for Yuktoon Yuktun Ganumchit coming up.